0: I'm Catherine Goldschmidt, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How you doing?
3: I look realistically different, even though we're recording this the same night we did the last one because we changed shirts. <laughs> did I ruin the <laughs> illusion for everyone? You,
2: you gave away the illusion. And, and, and in case anyone out there was wondering, that's how it's done. That's how people do like a month's worth of content. There's the C word. Uh. You know in a day or a weekend, they change their shirts, they change their hats, giving it away, pulling back the curtain on how everyone does hey, can it. Hey, I, can I give, uh, our
3: video viewers will notice, I put a watch on for this one, but I wasn't wearing one on last week's.
2: <laughs> N- nobody noticed that. Nobody, that, 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 no, no, it's, yeah, it's
3: that, very subtle. It's It's like in The Shining, how Kubrick subtly changes the geography of the Overlook Hotel, and my body is the Overlook Hotel. So, um, (laughs) Ilya, who is on the show today?
2: I'm very pleased to announce on the show today is Catherine Goldschmidt, incredibly talented DP. Uh, She's Emmy nominated for uh, House of the Dragon. She uh, shot an episode and uh, it's getting some recognition and some love, which is tremendous. And I have a great conversation with her and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Uh, But first up, our close focus. What do we need to talk about this week? What's going on in the industry? And now,
1: close Close focus. focus.
3: Well, it's something that went around, uh, it it kind of jumped out at Film Twitter. I refuse to call it Film X. It was a conversation that that Variety did, uh, directors on directors, with Spike Lee and Bradley Cooper. And Hmm. Bradley Cooper said something that kind of set people off, and I think it's worth discussing. And that's that Bradley Cooper, you ready? You sitting down? Because you won't be if you're on a freaking Bradley Cooper set, because he does not approve of chairs.
2: Oh, well, who does approve of chairs? I mean, isn't everybody anti-chair these days? It's kind of like, you know, the new fad thing.
3: Well, and that's interesting because uh, when I was telling you about the story, we uh, looked up a a story about it on tmz of all places and apparently
2: <laughs> tmz Chris- sourcing the cinematography podcast thank you tmz thank wh- you for giving us this, 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 ap- this critically important story about no chairs on bradley cooper's set. but apparently christopher <laughs>
3: nolan and Zack snyder are both anti-chair people as well so i will say that bradley cooper i get it if if you feel this way in yourself but like banning it on the set seems draconian but yeah what do i know but basically he's like, you sit in a chair and all the energy goes out of your body. I, I find when I'm on a set, I almost never sit down. You you almost don't need a director's chair for me because I'm never going to sit down. And when I do sit down, maybe I agree with him in, in a sense in that like when I sit down, I'm like, Oh, my God, why haven't I sat down all morning? You know, but like I'm usually up answering questions, talking to people, talking to the actors, talking to the DP. And I also feel an enormous pressure to be um, not not to be the uh, guy sitting in the in the Winnebago telling everyone what to do and like, you know, serve me my minions, but like out there working my ass off like everybody else, because it's a lot of work and people are need answers to decisions so that they can do their job. So I sort of get it. He's also anti-Video Village. And I think that Video Village, uh, for those of you who aren't on sets on a regular basis, Video Village kind of starts up in the advent of video taps, but becomes almost impossible to escape in our modern era where you can monitor basically a one for one reproduction of what the camera is seeing and executive producers, advertising agencies, whoever it is can sit there and scrutinize the image and be like ooh do we need all that light hitting that thing ooh does that red cup draw your eye ooh is his shirt too green whatever it is and it's it's a blessing and a curse I'll say you know like in the olden days where the dp was really the only person seeing the footage as it was happening the director would usually be standing next to the camera and Uh, indeed, Bradley Cooper kind of talks about, like, he wants to be right next to the camera. I have, on my last several shoots, I have personally experimented with staying out of Video Village unless there was physically no place for me on set. And sometimes you're shooting in a tiny corner and, like, it's not fair for me to say, hey, could you guys move all this art direction so I can stand by the camera? I'll, you know, I can, I can be ten further feet away. But my goal is to be closer to camera. But the question is, and I'm curious as to your take about this, Do you think there should be no chairs on set?
2: I think it's an interesting thing for the Internet to blow up over. I've certainly been on sets where there were no chairs, but that was because production could not afford chairs. It was a very low budget production. And if you were going to park your butt on something, it was going to be an Apple box, which is what Bradley
3: Cooper says, by the way. He's like, if you need to sit, you can sit on an Apple box. And again, as a director, if I'm right by the camera, I don't want to be in the actor's eye line. I might sit on an Apple box to be lower.
2: And an Apple box, perfectly acceptable for that. Although you definitely, if you spend a lot of time sitting on Apple boxes, you're you're going to feel it. That uh, They make now pads for Apple no, boxes. No, so The Apple
3: yeah. box pads have been around for a long time. I think they're, I yes, think they're pretty cool. Uh,
2: well, it, you know, it's interesting, though. I don't think I've ever worked with a sound guy that would accept that. So maybe there's no chairs at Video Village, but I think every sound person I ever worked with... Is gonna have a chair you want your sound
3: mixer to be very comfortable i mean like you you you, you, you don't (laughs) want your sound mixer to be uh fuzzy and uncomfortable and where there's
2: that is a job that should be done Sitting. And I would say that actually probably an onset colorist or, you know, DIT station too. you probably want them comfortable too. I'm presuming organized.
3: that those people yeah. have chairs. I think that Bradley Cooper is saying, I don't want every I don't want a peanut gallery sitting around a monitor watching it like that. And I, I to a degree, I wonder if you're the caliber of director that he is who makes Oscar kind of movies. I guess you can say, hey, folks, no video village. Uh, come to dailies and we can talk about
2: stuff frankly you know directors should be near the camera they should I think it, it if more directors behaved like Bradley cooper I think they'd probably have a a better relationship with uh with their actors i I can't I can't tell you how many times I was on set and the director was like, a several-minute walk. <laughs> it seemed like it was like it was like if they wanted to come and actually say something on set, they had to like get out of their chair and walk around a corner, do a whole thing, get, come you know, go down some stairs. It was like, yeah, there, it was. It seems very impersonal to be like you know, shouting directions into a you know a walkie-talkie with an ad nearby.
3: I once worked like, on a show. It was yeah. uh, one of those crime scene reenactment shows where what they wanted me to do. Was to sit in Video Village and loudly direct the actors so that everyone on set could hear what I was doing. So like the DP could focus in on what, I, you know, if I was like, hey, scratch your face a little bit. Like they were looking for little pieces of tiny behavior and it ran antithetical to every way that I've ever worked. Because to me, it's like the director whispers in the actor's ear. The director doesn't tell everyone what they're telling the actor. Sometimes the actor will tell one actor one thing and one actor another thing so that they can get whatever dramatic tension out of, out of the scene. I feel like also like what comes up in this Bradley Cooper situation is Quentin Tarantino, who mm. also famously, I, I don't know about chairs. I'm assuming that there are chairs on Quentin Tarantino sets, but he is uh he he never sits in Video Village. is always right at the camera and you can find numerous videos of him on YouTube kind of talking about this and saying like your movie's happening right there and you're, you're 50 feet away watching it on TV. Yeah. But what Tarantino also does, I think Bob Richardson told us about this. Yeah. No Um, cell phones, no cell phones on set. In fact, you show up and they take your cell phone away. And now to me, this is something that I appreciate safety,
2: safety issue though,
3: too, for some, I I appreciate it. But I also feel like I would never have the discipline to do it. But also, I feel like I use my cell phone on set for a million things. I have a sun sure, tracker sure. app, so I'm yeah. like, I'm looking to see where the sun is going to be at what time if we're shooting exteriors. I have Polycam, so I'm scanning a room to make a very quick overhead that I can use, uh, shot designer inside of. Uh, I mean, like I I,
2: I. I thought for a second that was totally the dating app for polyamorous camera people. Uh, <laughs> so.
3: That's it's a good idea. Um, I would support people with that lifestyle, but that would not be me. Um, I mean, when I do second unit, a lot of times I'll take a picture right off the DIT station. If we're trying to match a shot and I'll go to the the second unit uh, DP and say, this is the shot we're trying to exactly emulate. So to me, like not having a phone, I would feel like a little cut off at the heels. But I appreciate the fact that Tarantino is not an anti-technology person, but anti-technology in that way, because it is true that your phone becomes a massive distraction on set. For sure. Uh, The flip of that, by the way, is when we're shooting, when we're rolling camera, unless we need him or her for the shot, I don't give a crap if the key grip's checking his email or looking at Facebook or TikTok or whatever, as long as they're he's not doing dis-
2: it for the gram. You know, as, gotta- long, <laughs> as, long, as long as
3: they're not distracting from the rest of the set, you know, movie sets are full of hurry up and wait. And if uh, playing a quick game of words with friends gets you through the day, then I actually, on my sets, I don't care, and I will say one other thing, is that the amount of discipline it takes to be on set, to be on a film set, even right by the camera and looking at the actors, not at the on-camera monitor, is still, it's an enormous siren song. Your your eyes just go down to it, and you wanna watch the framing and the composition and the lighting and, and everything. And as someone who's directed a ton of theater, I know how to watch the actors without looking at a camera. Uh, or or without looking at a monitor, but it's like it so draws you in. It is so hard not to look at that monitor, even if you're saying I'm going to stand here right for the actors. But, you know, uh, baby steps.
2: I've talked to some people who've deleted TikTok for the same reason. They told me they can't have TikTok on their phone anymore. Like TikTok is not a not a thing. So I am not a TikToker, so I don't know. But uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. To do what? It's. To, to can't look away. That like they can't have it on their they can't have TikTok on their phone because it's like they open up their phone, they try to do something, but then they see TikTok and then they go down the rabbit hole of like what crazy bizarre stuff are you are you going to see? Well I next?
3: know we started with Bradley Cooper and chairs, but I will just say this. I do have TikTok on my phone. Every once in a while I'll check it out. I have yet to be sucked down a rabbit hole of TikTok. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's an age thing or whatever. I, I have a harder time turning off YouTube than TikTok. But but, uh, when you're on set and you have an actor five feet away from you acting their heart out, crying, laughing, freaking out, pretending to stab someone in the face, whatever, there's something so tempting about looking at a monitor instead of watching them. But I do agree with Tarantino's, his constant drumbeat about that, which is like you get a better sense of the performance watching them. You are watching a TV when you're when you're watching a monitor. But if you've ever been in a doctor's office that had a TV, your eye just goes to it, man. We've been we've spent, you know, whatever, eighty years on this technology to make people want to stare at it and and we all stare. So maybe maybe Tarantino's onto something with the phone and the monitor and all that stuff. And maybe Bradley Cooper is too, getting rid
2: of the video village. Yeah. I, you know, uh, who would have thought that getting rid of a comfortable place to sit will make for a better movie? But but terrific. I'm glad that it works for him and his, and his team.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I got no judgment on it at all. I, I think that he I think he took an unnecessary amount of heat about it. Honestly,
2: I think it's really interesting because uh, I'm sure that most of that heat is not coming from people who spent a lot of time in Video Village. So, which should be the people who'd be giving him heat. Seems like those would be yeah, the people. I'm sure his script supervisor has a delightful chair. I mean, come on. She's probably got like a lean-to of some sort because, you know, script, <laughs> super, script supers absolutely need a chair.
3: For they sure. put her in one of those giant plastic bubbles that Wayne Coyne uh, from The Flaming Lips comes out on the audience and she's just like in a big plastic bubble.
2: <laughs> a Zorb, isn't that what those are? Is that giant what those called? Those were like the ones that you can roll down the hill in. So, And on that note, let's get to our interview. <laughs> Here's the interview with Catherine Goldschmidt.
1: The Cinematography Podcast interview.
2: Uh, I'm joined now by Catherine Goldschmidt, BSC. Uh, Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: You've been doing this for a little while, and congratulations on being uh, inducted into the BSC. I know a bit about what it takes to get into the the ASC. Is is it something similar for the BSC? What's this like, uh, you know, having those three letters after your name?
0: Yeah, well, um, it is exciting. Uh, It is similar, yes. You have to be nominated by two different people who are, you know, members of good standing. I think they have to have been members for five years or something like that. So my membership is brand new. Um, I got inducted this past summer.
2: Congratulations. Well, I hope that it brings you all kinds of extra career success, because I I, I certainly know that having those letters can sometimes uh, be a real sign of achievement and legitimacy and credibility. And at the very least, I know quite a few people out there who uh, have leveraged those letters into very good teaching positions too so you know that that is one of those those things like that that kind of added benefit i i've heard from my friends in some of these guilds. when you decide or if you ever decide who i teach uh suddenly your 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 resume goes to the very top
0: oh wow yeah there's my backup plan there's Sorted. your backup,
2: backup plan yes exactly anyway Catherine, congratulations on an emmy nom you were nominated for house of the dragon uh episode season eight uh, i watched the entire series it is a beautiful series. And that episode in particular is also just lovely. There is a lot of stuff going on. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about your career, but since I've already brought up House of the Dragon, let's dive right in. Were you a fan of Game of Thrones? Did you watch any Game of Thrones before before coming into this new series? <laughs>
0: I definitely I definitely did watch Game of Thrones but I think the term fan I'm not sure I identify exactly that way but I definitely you know thought the show was awesome and was really excited you know when the call came in asking if I wanted to meet on um, this prequel show obviously it's a it, it's a different show it's it's its own thing but um, we sort of hark back if you like or forward depending um to the Game of Thrones it's all the same universe so yeah so it's it's a really fun sandbox to play in
2: yeah uh okay so the episode that is nominated is uh episode eight and were you shooting other shows of the series too or did you just come in for this this one episode
0: i just did the one episode with gita patel so the way that it works is that directors are sort of paired with dps Mm -hmm. and so she and i yeah we came in to just do episode eight
2: well, congratulations, that, that's great. You know, uh, sometimes it really takes people a rhythm to figure out what the show is and how it's gonna be, but you came in, you kicked butt, and I'm glad that you got this, this great recognition. So tell me what working on House of the Dragon, uh, I assume, It must be similar to uh, Game of Thrones. We've had Game of Thrones DPs on here to kind of talk about the colossal moving of armies to make this happen and the combinations of miniatures and VFX and all of that sort of stuff. What was your experience? How was it coming in totally new, not having done that before, and then, uh, you know, just knocking it out of the park?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was very exciting. It was also, you know, a bit overwhelming because it was, you know, the biggest show I'd ever been on really and yeah it is a sort of behemoth of a production everything from the sets which are enormous to you know the costumes which are so incredibly painstakingly handmade and aged and all the armory obviously all the armor made by the armory department and yeah then working with extensively with vfx etc but yeah I mean one beautiful thing about our episode is that It is, in many ways, a bottle episode, you know, like it, a lot of it is, is interior, you know, we had some exteriors, we had some location work, but the majority, we have these enormous, great multicast scenes, which happen on stage. And so that, meant that the sort of biggest challenge I think really within the episode was just digging way into you know each and every character where they were at whose point of view we wanted to be in at any given time and really try to craft these you know I mean we we have a there's this sort of epically long dinner table scene that's like a 15 page scene with, I don't know, 11 or something, I've lost count, principal cast members. So, you know, so something like that, you sort of really just wanna dissect it, pull it apart and figure out the best place for the camera to be at any given moment, really.
2: Yeah, is, is it a, a single camera show for the most part or were you taking advantage of multi-camera when you've got that much dialogue with all that cast, you know, how do you break that up?
0: Yeah, so the show on paper is a is a two-camera show. So there's an A and a B camera with you all the time. And then there's a floating C camera. Now that just is because there's two units who shoot the show all the time. Mm-hmm. But really, a lot of times you're working with a C camera even if that person is, you know, a day player. And for our big multicast scenes, which were the dinner table scene and then the scene in the throne room, um, we used four cameras.
2: Nice. Uh, so let me ask you this. Had the show started airing by the time while you were in production with episode eight? Was it already on? Did, did you have the ability to look at finished, fully graded episodes before you, you started your journey with the House of the Dragon?
0: No, so it's a unique way that the show shoots. It's similar to Thrones, or or perhaps it's the Thrones model, which is basically they shoot all the episodes at once, mm-hmm. sort of all scrambled together in the schedule. So it's quite unusual. I mean, for us, we because we were only doing one, we did start a lot later, and that's why we wound up only doing one because of the director's availability. So we did start later. So we had the we had the opportunity to look at dailies you know lots of people's dailies before we started and i think what had happened is that they had actually because episode seven was mostly shot on location in cornwall they had done that first so um, and that's miguel's episode so he had cut um we were able to watch a lot of scenes from that episode, you know, cut together early on, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't anything like, you know, final graded or even aired episodes, definitely not. So you know, that's one of the pleasures about working on the show is just that, you know, everybody's in there all together, you know, trying to figure certain stuff out. You know, I just I we just wrapped season two at the end of September, and Gita and I came back to do two episodes and we started right at the start. So then we sort of experienced this year a little bit more with that like to just be in prep with four other directors and four other dps and really just trying to like dig into the sets and the locations and figure out you know what everybody needs from them and so yeah it's a different way of working but but it, it's cool
2: there's a fun little sequence right near the beginning where I don't think giving anything away now since it's, it's, it's been out for a while, but there's some dragon eggs that are being harvested out of like this uh, crevasse or this, you know, this cave, this this thing. And there's this really incredible backlight and you just, you don't even see like the head of who's doing this. And there's incredible, like, it looks like practical effects of steam rising out of this like molten, almost like, you know, dried lava sort of thing. It, was that all in a stage? Did you guys build a thing? Can you talk a little bit about that little sequence? It's just sort of like a fun little moment and it's cut together so nicely, and it really kind of sets the stage for the rest of what's going to happen later in in the series. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit about this moment?
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for asking about it. I I actually love this scene, even though on the page it was just really tiny, like, you know, and Damon climbs down and finds some eggs, but, you know, but it was really, it was really fun for us to shoot because it's like a world building moment, like where, where do dragons lay their eggs? How does Damon find them? How d- how do we see them? And this is obviously Damon's introduction in our episode as well. So yeah, so we really wanted to sort of play a little bit on the mystery of, you know, of where we are. You know, not not to reveal too much basically, you know, to leave to leave people guessing a little bit for, you know, future episodes. But yeah, so so I think it starts I think the sequence starts with this enormous wide shot which was a combination of so part of that is a set build that's actually an exterior set build on the back lot uh, so we did shoot like a stunt performer coming down this crevasse but then because Gita wanted the shot you know wider than they could possibly build the set um, and that we could go then the rest is um, is a VFX set extension that they, that they did I think using miniatures so that's that shot and then in the director's cut, it's unbroken that you just sort of, the camera glides along the floor and up the mound and you see somebody kneel down, you don't see who they are, they're digging, they're digging, they're digging, the egg comes out and then you reveal its Damon, all one shot. So that's that's how I know it was in the director's cut, but obviously, like, they had made, you're right, it's a practical prop with the eggs and the steam and the this and the that. So even on the day, we were like, well, we do have to, you know, shoot this piece of coverage because you might want to see that. And it's true, they, they wanted to see it. So so yeah, but I mean, it was it was such a fun scene to just, you know, conceptualize with everybody. And the scene is just a great example of all the departments collaborating to create, you know, this this new aspect of the world. Oh,
2: that, that's great. All right, I'll tell you what, you did a BTS. You did a BTS for it. You did a thing <laughs> called The House That Dragons Built or something like that, which also aired on, on HBO Max. How do you feel about doing sort of like that BTS promo type of thing? I mean, I assume they do that long after the fact and they're not like, you know, taking you kind of like on the day, uh, you know, you're getting called in to talk about your job and your craft. And that's a thing that most like, if people want to seek out DPs talking about the craft, they, they find shows like, you know, like this, that they, they, you know, they, this stuff is out there, but it's not usual that DPs get brought in and really, you know, talk about their stuff in like an EPK format that goes out on networks, you know, to the whole world. What's what's that experience like for you? You know, sitting down and being there with you know directors and stars and talking about your craft and, and that sort of standpoint. There's usually a really big divide between the above the line people, all of the artists. You know, as the DP, you are the head of three departments below the line, and you're part of all that. You know, what's that experience like of doing the the publicity bandwagon for for a show?
0: Well, it's funny. You say like, oh, they probably let you finish the show first and then record. But actually, on season one, I clearly remember having to do that behind the scenes video before we'd shot Mm. huge scenes, actually, before we'd done the dinner table, before we'd done the king's death. So I was getting asked about it, but we had to sort of speak hypothetically a little bit because we hadn't done it yet. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was, yeah, and it was sort of nerve-wracking too because obviously we had all these plans and all these intentions, but we hadn't, we hadn't done it. So that was very strange. I actually preferred... This year, somehow they managed to let us shoot most of what we were supposed to shoot before they pulled us in and started asking us about that, and that made it a lot easier. You're honestly. giving away the movie um,
2: magic. Most people think that, like you know, and, and like you could have you could have just right now said, "Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, we did it much later." And but no, no, you're, you're revealing the fact that quite often, like you know, you're being asked to talk about things that haven't even happened. Anyway,
0: uh... I know, I know. And anyway, I was really surprised that, you know, that they cut it all together and it was like we had done it already. And um, so I I was also fooled by the movie magic of it all. But I think, you know, I think one thing that you were asking me about is just like the whole experience of working on the show and the fan base is that people really are interested in what everybody is bringing to the table. And that's why we're all included in the behind the scenes, because it is really this monument. Monumental, you know team effort with all the departments pitching in and lending their expertise and that's that's truly Genuinely one of my favorite things about working on the show
2: Catherine I want to switch gears here a little bit. Tell me how you got the bug When did you first realize that this was a career that you could have?
0: Okay, so I Don't think I realized it was a career until I got to university. So prior to that, I grew up in New Jersey, small town, public high school, and basically you could either do sports or, you know, do theater. So I did theater. And then I got to college and I tried out for all the plays and I didn't get cast. And then somebody asked me, oh, well, I'm shooting a short film on the weekend. You know, do you want to come help me with that? I said yes, and then I just, so yeah, so that that is the bug moment because that's the first time I was on, you know, a sort of proper, although it was a student film set, but they, you know, I learned how to load the mags, you know, they were shooting on 16, and, and I watched this guy, my friend, you know, run around with a light meter and move lights around, and it was just, you know, we were laying marks, we were doing the clapperboard, it was the whole thing, And I just was totally blown away and I just, you know, I never, never went back to theater and um, became a film studies major, which, you know, is more because it was a liberal arts college. Um, I went to Wesleyan and so it was all, you know, history and theory and criticism, you know, and there were just a few... Um, opportunities for production, which I took with both hands and I, you know, did extra courses in the summer. And when I graduated, I moved to LA and started working, you know, fairly quickly as a camera assistant. And yeah, and then I don't know. Should
2: I keep going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you you had the apprentice route. It sounds like a lot of a lot of people these days. Apprenticing seems to have, have gone away a little bit. I came up the apprentice way. I also, you know, went went to school and then uh, did the camera assisting thing uh, before moving on. All right. So, uh, so you're out in Los Angeles. You're working as an AC. When do you make the jump to DP, or is you were you DPing all along? A lot of ACs with aspirations of being the cinematographer they will pick up short films, they'll do different things. What, what was your journey like? How did, you, how did you make the move?
0: Yeah, so I moved to LA, I guess it was 2005, Canon XL2 35 millimeter adapter. So mini DV was like the format of choice and you were just trying to give it, you know, some depth of field, some cinematic qualities. So yeah, so I definitely was doing that dance, acing for money short films, you know, to build a reel. Um, But I also found myself working for, you know, a group of DPs who had all gone to the same film school. They'd all gone to AFI and they were all quite, you know, supportive of me saying, you know, Katie, if you if you really want to shoot, don't get stuck being a camera assistant. Take your portfolio, apply to this program. You know, it will change your life. And that's basically what happened. So, yeah.
2: So so uh, so you went to AFI then?
0: I did. Yeah.
2: When when were you at (laughs) AFI?
0: So I was at AFI in, uh, I graduated in 2009 and it's a two-year program, yeah.
2: I don't really think there's anything else like that out there. It's a, it's a pretty singular experience. So uh, I, t- I take it that it, it did change your life. It was, it was worth, the, worth the, the two years.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, just just to be able to, you know, and and this is what I remember, this is I I was working for Allison Kelly at the time. And this is exactly what she told me, which is just like, you can learn the skills in the real world, of course, and you can, you know, you can hone your craft, the way you're doing it now. Um, But if you can go to AFI, then what you're then what will happen is you're just going to accelerate the learning curve, because you just shoot Film after film after film, and you get critiqued, and you get to absorb that criticism, and and do it again, and it's just that much faster. And so yeah, so I mean, I I loved it. It was it was great.
2: I want to jump forward a little a little bit in uh, in time, just because we we've, we've been talking now for actually uh, for quite a while, and I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I haven't spoken, I don't believe, to any DP who's worked on a Quibi series, and I saw on oh, yeah. your IMDb. <laughs> That you did dummy and uh you know it stars anna kendrick and uh i i know it went out into the world and i did not have quibi so i unfortunately never got to see it i have heard that all of the quibi programming did get bought by someone but i don't know who and where you can find it i don't know if this is something that you can find out there or not but i was told stories about having to shoot every single show in both 16 by 9 and nine by 16, you're shaking your head. This is this is a real, this is an urban legend, this is true.
0: No, to, that's to, accurate, yeah. So, yeah. so I gotta yeah. ask, so was, basically, it, was it
2: big, wide yeah. and stupid and they just made two extractions or did you shoot for one and they took the other out? How, how, do, how do you do that? How do you make that happen?
0: Yeah, well, so it was fascinating because I, First of all, when I interviewed for the job, it was just like, I read the script, I met the director, I met the showrunner, we all liked each other, I thought the script was hilarious, so I said yes. And I knew it was for the phone, but this whole thing about the framing came later. And basically, we went into Quibi and they sort of, they they hadn't shot a narrative fiction show yet. They were in the process of doing some documentary work, but we were their first fictional series to start production. So what they'd done is they'd done a bunch of tests. So they showed us all these tests on the app, and basically how the tests worked was that they were like, the the practice is you frame for 16 by 9, you know, slightly wider than you would otherwise, and then when you turn your phone, the 9 by 16 is a crop. And so I watched these examples in real time, because that's the idea is that you, you can flip your phone in real time and it just does it.
2: Oh, I didn't realize and, that. And
0: okay. Oh, yeah, 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 that was the, uh, that was some of the tech. Yeah, it was, it was basically, it was two versions of the, of the show streaming simultaneously. And so then you're just choosing between them, same soundtrack. Um, and I would really I like to see a lot was, more
2: headroom, please. Yeah. I want to switch my phone. Oh, you know what? What are they wearing for pants? Oh, wait a second. Uh, I I don't... I don't <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, look, I don't think it. I don't think I was the only one who could predict that Quibby was going to be challenged, to say the least. I don't think that that was. It took a really great crystal ball to understand that that this might not have been the the thing. But okay, so so let me. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. P- please continue about like That's how, how, how did good. you guys figure this out? But then I want to. Yeah, yeah. Then I want to ask you that like, what does that do to you psychologically when you're on set? And so like you know, I've got this really great frame here, and now I have to make this other really great frame? Or is this, which is the compromise? It seems to me like something's gonna
0: be compromised. Totally, totally. So here's what I wound up pitching back to them and they were like, sure, try it, you know. So what I wound up doing essentially was we actually framed for a square, you Mm. know, one one by one square. And out of that square, you take the 16 by nine extraction and you take the nine by 16 extraction. And the benefit of that is that when you turn your phone, it's not a crop, and it's just a it's just a new frame. So you so so in other words, yeah, you're discovering more that you didn't see in the other version, and where we wound up putting that more was we put it we put it down below. So because we wound up shooting it large format, we shot it on the Sony Venice, such that we could you know take these crops and have them um, still be high resolution so yeah so after scouting around with these two custom frame lines um i actually realized there's so much extra frame down below so we wound up doing it more we wound up arranging the frame lines more in like a crucifix type you know so a little more headroom but then still it's yeah there's more there's more down below so so what this wound up doing for us psychologically on set was interesting because you know everybody was it was new for everyone, right? Like the operators were like, "Oh my god, <laughs> what's this going to be like?" And you know, and it and it felt like actually it was going to affect everybody's job, really, because you know, like no longer necessarily could you be hiding cables on the floor, or could the actor not wear shoes, or you know what I mean? All these things that you sort of like take for granted. Um, you have to not anymore because because actually you know the frame might be inclusive of them, so um, yeah the boom but operator must have had some issues yeah,
2: yeah boom ops usually they're exactly, like they want to go exactly. up or they want to go under yeah. and now you're taking both yeah. away from them so <laughs> yeah 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 well there was uh,
0: like I said I think little, I think the, little the little limited bit. headroom yeah. up top was helpful but I think. The fact that the show is mostly, you know, Anna Kendrick acting opposite a sex doll, and it's very much a comedy. I think that lent itself to the format. Like I remember the show I was shooting just before was, you know, this like, multicast. murder mystery and i was like thank god i don't have to compose for you know nine people in a frame or whatever so that wound up suiting it quite well and to be honest yeah everybody everybody sort of surprised themselves in a way because because we wound up finding new value in the 9 by 16 frame i mean i remember watching it on the app and thinking because here was the thing yeah you asked which were we going to prioritize well everybody was like well we're obviously going to prioritize the 16 by 9 because if this was ever going to live off the app then that's how people would see it and we're filmmakers and that's our aspect ratio but the surprising thing was just when I did watch it on the app I wound up holding my phone vertically which is what the app people told us would occur you know that was mm. that was the sort of like that was why I was searching for this better solution because because everything that they had done in their testing told them that most of their audience was going to be watching it vertically so that's why i didn't want it to just be some you know some crap i wanted it to be you know to be a frame that we had chosen and composed for
2: yeah well it's it's way more comfortable to hold a phone you know this way than 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 that way and i think that actually that's the default for a lot of people but composing like two shots or three characters i mean maybe that's not you didn't have to do that for dummy but i got to imagine that As you're doing this this 9 by 16, and you have to have maybe a group of people talking to each other, it makes a lot of sense in the traditional format of where you position people in shot, reverse shot. When you're doing it in vertical, how, how does that scramble your brain? Or how do you then, how to place people? Are you placing people more in Z axis so they're further further apart, but closer together? I mean, do, you, do you, are you trying to really to hold two people like over the shoulder in, in that sort of shot? That, that to me just seems like, it seems like you spend your entire life learning how to really get great at one thing. And then someone says, yeah, you know what? Let's just chop the sides off and now you got this room here. How does that how I mean, your blocking has to change your your framing has to change. how How does that change your your job responsibilities?
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, yeah, two two shots were tough. They just you know, especially like if you if you really wanted to hold them in the nine by sixteen, you just you just had to get way far back, basically. but where I remember us really sort of like having fun with the two aspect ratios, because um, it and it was a learning curve for everybody, right? Like I think when we started, it was definitely like we were playing it safe and this and that. But by the time we got to the end, you know, we were trying to choreograph like Steadicam runners where mm. it was going to work in both aspect ratios, mm. and I remember that was. It was a challenge, but but everybody was sort of like pitching in and trying to sort of troubleshoot and figure out how that was going to work. So it wound up being fun, you know. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like it's a challenge, and then you just then you then everybody just puts their heads together, and then it's fun.
2: Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Catherine. Are you on social media anywhere? If someone wants to look you, I mean, they can go to your IMDb and look at all the different projects you've done. But do you uh, exist out sort of in the world? If someone wants to reach out to you, can can they find you?
0: Yes. So on Instagram, my handle is at CGDOP. And I also have a website, Katherine
2: Excellent. We'll put links to that in our show notes over at Cam Noir. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. It was, it was really uh, a delight talking to you, and uh, I can't wait to see what you do next.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: All right. So that was uh, Catherine Goldschmidt. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great chatting with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing uh, your next project. Awesome. So Ben, it is bill paying time. And we got to thank our good friends over at Aerie. Aerie, maker of fine cameras, lighting, all kinds of incredible equipment, including uh, a, you know, one of the absolute best systems out there for camera assistants. I know we have a lot of camera assistants who listen to this show and they have a awesome handheld unit called the Hi5. The Hi5 has already made uh, a ton of friends out there in the industry, and they continue to have firmware updates. Uh, the last one they had was several months ago, but this, the latest one offers all kinds of new improvements. So. It has a new long range RF900 mode. It's now compatible with the Cinefade. Also has a user setup browser and a rings browser. It's got all these extra things sort of built into it. I don't want to get into the minutia of all the new stuff that the Hi5 does because there is an excellent 10 minute long video on the Airy channel on YouTube and we will put a link to that in the show notes below this video on YouTube and also at camnoir.com so uh, go and check out all the things that are new with the Airy uh, High Five, which they the new firmware they call the Sub 2.1, and that Sub 2.1 will unlock all this cool stuff. So uh, check out the Airy High Five latest firmware. And if you've got one of those systems, if you're a camera assistant, uh, let us know. Reach out to us. Let us know uh, how it's changed your life or how it uh, you know improves what you're doing. A lot of people I know out there are in, totally in love with this tool, and camera assistants in particular have to be very very familiar with their tool. Their tools are almost an extension of their body because, you know, they are, you know, the human manifestation of what some of their tools are doing in order to keep the camera always in focus, in order to keep the focus where it's supposed to be. There isn't really autofocus in the feature film and television world. There's a little bit, but not really. And it's always the artistry of an individual. And let's hear it for the camera assistants who know how to get the best that they possibly can in sometimes impossible situations. If you have ever had a hard time focusing on something? You probably weren't using The Aerie high five. And let's face it, you need the right tools in order to be able to do this job effectively. So uh, thank you, Aerie. And that's about just gonna do it for our last Aerie commercial of the year. Whoa. I know, isn't this crazy? Insane. And now, short ends. So Ben, what is uh, your obsession this week? What are you you all about?
3: Well, uh, candy canes? uh, No you know me just uh, an avatar a walking avatar of the christmas spirit um uh no i was recently going down a brian de palma rabbit hole because in my opinion there's kind of no one who ever shot a suspense sequence like brian de palma hmm. he's just so good and yeah you you can uh fault him for being derivative of everyone from Sturgy Eisenstein to Alfred Hitchcock, but I came across an amazing documentary from seven years ago, from 2015. So sorry, eight years ago, almost nine years ago. So from last decade, called De Palma. It's it's streaming on Max, uh, and you can also get it on Prime Video. It was uh, done by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, and Jake Paltrow hmm. also is the DP of the documentary. and It's Brian De Palma walks you through his whole freaking career and the creative decisions that he made and why he made them. And he's of a generation, you know, in the generation with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, like they were all very contemporaries of each other. You know, and in a lot of ways, he's kind of a precursor to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. You know, he made he made, I believe, the first Stephen King feature, if not the first one, but the most successful early one in Carrie, which is, I think, still a, a movie that packs a punch today. You know, he uh, dressed to kill body double the untouchables, the first Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. And he, he talks through his creative process. And uh, I, I know I've talked about him before because there was that podcast version of The Devil's Candy talking about his adaptation of Bonfire of the Vanities, which is kind of a notorious flop. And when you watch this, you're like, whoever paired him with that material was the person who made the mistake. Like, he was just such a specific flavor of filmmaker. And there's kind of no one who does exactly what he does. And it's a little unfortunate that we don't have a lot of newer movies from him. But go back and watch Carlito's Way. Go back and watch body double or or Carrie or any any of these movies. He really in so many ways was a master is a master of like how to set up a suspense sequence there was a scene uh, from Carlito's Way that I was just kind of studying how they did it from early in the movie when he and his cousin go to this drug deal and he's just Carlito played by uh, Al Pacino has just gotten out of prison and it's all kind of in this one room with these guys playing pool and stuff and it reminds me of the scene that I know I've talked about a million times from training day, the scene where they where Alonzo, the, the Denzel Washington character drops Ethan Hawke's character off at a, at a drug house. And it's just, you can't say why, but nothing is safe. It's just unnerving. I I found myself watching that scene over and over again and kind of picking apart like what's De Palma doing and it's interesting to hear him talk about how he likes to set a scene, how he likes to create a point of view. He's one of the masters of the craft. I feel like we don't talk about him enough these days and uh, because I do think he's extremely influential, you know, as influential as Francis Ford Coppola is, you know, like he, he was one of those 1970s directors upon whom all of us stand on his shoulders.
2: Yeah, I, I think that Carlito's Way, in particular, that sort of uh, escalator sequence towards the end. Oh, too, my God. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a great movie. And, yeah. and I
3: feel like t- these days we kind of have, you know, watch. I, I'm not I'm not down on Marvel movies or anything, but you watch a lot of movies that have like big action sequences and they feel very prevised and planned out and almost boilerplate to a degree, like there's one way to do it. And I feel like he's someone who was really looking at a scene and figuring out where's the tension coming from and how can I mislead you and how can I draw you in the wrong direction and pull your eye over here and then make something blow up over there. Anyway, I, I just think it's a worthwhile documentary to check out. Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow both very talented directors and uh, and it's very intimate and it does feel like he's... Talking intimately to someone who he knows, who is a director. Did you
2: see his last movie, Domino?
3: I did not. No, I didn't.
2: Yeah, I never saw that either. I, now that I see, that there's this movie that I, I a Brian De Palma film I've never seen. I gotta, go, I gotta go check it out.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's also like never, never a bad time to revisit Scarface and revisit all these movies that he did. All right, cool. So that's my short end, uh, Ilya. What is yours?
2: Wonka. I, I saw well, Wonka and. It's my short end. You know, I didn't expect that I was going to like Wonka. Okay, first of all, it's a family film. So, yeah. you know, you have to get your head straight. It's not super subversive. It's a, it's a family film. And I've never seen you know, Paddington The original 2. Willy yeah. Wonka
3: and the Chocolate Factory is also a family film and is also one of the most deeply subversive films ever made, in my opinion.
2: But go, go on. on. There's some interesting choices in this movie. And I think, by and large, they work. But it all kind of stems initially from... Willy Wonka being illiterate. So I'm not gonna give anything else away, but the fact that he's illiterate basically kind of puts a whole series of events into action. And I really appreciate some of the clever, you know, okay, here's the thing. Through, through watching this movie, and now it makes perfect sense for all the other Wonkas, the Tim Burton version, the Gene Wilder version, whichever, whichever ones you're thinking of, but um, Willy Wonka is equivalent to Mary Poppins. As soon as you get in your mind that this is like Mary Poppins, that he's not just some sort of like mad chocolate genius tinkerer who can invent these things. No, he's magical. That is really what this is playing on. And as soon as you get that, it's like, I get it. I understand. I understand what this is. And I love the world they come up with. And I have to say that the the Oompa Loompa, there's really only one real Oompa Loompa giving nothing away because it's in the trailer for, for Wonka is played by Hugh Grant and Hugh Grant steals every single scene. I mean, he's he's, he's, a,
3: he's a treasure. He's an amazing actor.
2: He, he's great and he is so great in this role too. It's like you want to see sequels. You want to see more just because of Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant is like he's this incredible on-screen persona. He is a fierce antagonist in some ways to Wonka. It's like the whole idea of like Willy Wonka and Oompa Loompas, like all sort of living together in harmony that this predates that. And clearly it did not start out that way. So, uh, I love it. I I love all the stuff with you, Grant. And even though there's a little bit of things that were not my, my favorite aspects, this is not a, a review of the movie, but the movie works. I enjoyed it. It's silly it's out there well and it's the the
3: director of paddington and paddington 2 and like
2: i never saw that but now i feel like i have to
3: you haven't seen paddington 2 paddington 2 is pure magic you will love paddington 2
2: do i need to see paddington 1 to enjoy paddington 2
3: i did not see paddington 1 so i cannot tell you
2: okay so i just need to see paddington 2 all right yeah it's it's in my future now that I've seen Wonka, I' have to go watch Paddington too. Yeah, yeah. all right Ben I think that's just about gonna do it for us. Uh, who do we have to thank this week?
3: Uh, as always, we need to thank Alana Cody, our producer, setting up the interviews and uh, kicking our butts into high gear to uh, to get all the stuff done. We should uh, definitely also thank Ben Katz, our amazing editor who is charged with not making either one of us look or sound like dopes. And uh, even though you still have the fancy camera, I don't yet. So uh, I'm looking forward to it.
2: One more week. One more week.
3: One more impossible week of no (laughs) fancy camera. Maybe Uh, two. We'll figure it out. And last but never least, every scrap of music that you've heard uh, was recorded by a man named Kays Alatrachi. Go to his website, Music by Kays. That's with Kays with a K. K-A-Y-S, check his music out, hire him to do your visual effects, hire him as my friend Jill Bennett recently did to color grade your entire feature. He is he is everything all at once.
2: All right, Ben, where can people find you if they want to find you outside of this podcast?
3: Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. That's where my reel is
2: and all that good stuff. How about yourself? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, you know, I'm there. a uh, so Good Chunk of the time, reach out to me if you have questions about any of this stuff. Uh, If if not me, my team is super, super competent and they can help you with all kinds of stuff.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, would you like to take us out? Uh,
2: That's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) What are we we doing?
3: Something (laughs) like that. I don't know.
0: Who the hell knows? (laughs) All right.